Emma, have you heard of all the vaccines that are currently being developed for COVID-19? Yes, there are actually quite a few promising ones out there, two of which are RNA vaccines. Right. Those ones are developed by Pfizer and Moderna, and they're actually the first of their kind. So in this podcast, we're going to get into how these vaccines are different from other traditional vaccines. And one really exciting thing about the Pfizer vaccine that we'll talk about, but this vaccine was approved yesterday for emergency use authorization. So it's being rolled out to universities and nursing homes to start vaccinating patients there. A few weeks ago, I put out a Twitter thread and Instagram post explaining what RNA vaccines are and how they work. My goal with that post was not to tell people what to do or anything like that, but just to explain as an RNA biologist what happens when you get this vaccine and why it's an interesting technology. So both of these threads absolutely blew up, and it's obvious that many people have been wondering what RNA vaccines are, how they work, and how they're different from traditional vaccines. So we wanted to put together kind of a more in-depth view of my post that I made, so that way you can kind of just listen to this, get some more information, and then contact us if you have any more questions. Yeah, and you know, this has been really fun for us too, because there has never been an RNA vaccine before. So we're also learning what these things are. Um, So it's been great for us to read more about this. But before we dive into this new type of vaccine, let's go on a historical journey through all of vaccines. A lot of our information is coming from this great article that was published in the journal Cell. And it talks about the history of vaccines. So we'll be linking that article below in the show notes. And we recommend that you check it out. The idea of vaccination began in the 1400s in China for smallpox, and this term of vaccination for smallpox was called variolation. When someone had a mild form of smallpox, they'd take some of the dry scabs, grind them up, and would blow this smallpox dust up people's noses (laughs) with the hope that they would get a mild version of smallpox and then be immune. Yikes. Snorting smallpox. That's what's happening here. I do not like the idea of putting anything in my nose, but certainly not a smallpox vaccine or a smallpox dust. Yeah, yikes. Um, Variolation didn't arrive in Europe until the 1700s. And in the 1800s, Louis Pasteur created several vaccines, including a cholera and rabies vaccine. And the field of vaccination absolutely took off after this. So beyond this point, there were many different vaccines, including live attenuated, whole killed pathogens, subunit vaccines, and now we have the RNA vaccines. These different types of vaccines may be confusing, but they're all variations of the same theme. Their goal is to help someone's immune system recognize something that could be deadly so that if that person's exposed to the real thing, their immune system will kick in and not give them the full-blown disease. Exactly. Live attenuated vaccines use a weakened form of the virus, and an example of this is the chickenpox and smallpox vaccines. Because the whole virus is in the vaccine, a few doses of the vaccine are enough for lifelong immunity. Whole-killed pathogen vaccines, also called inactivated vaccines, have a dead version of the virus. An example of this is the flu shot or the polio vaccine. And since the virus is dead, you sometimes need booster shots because the immune response does not last as long. But to note here, the virus is dead, so it cannot infect you. I know some people have said with the flu vaccine that they 
when they have certain symptoms, they're like, are, am I infected with the flu? But in reality, those symptoms are just telling you that your immune system is working. Yeah. And I mean, with something like flu, it's not always 100% um, effective. So you might develop the flu later on. But if you get that vaccine, it'll help your immune system recognize it. So you shouldn't have as severe symptoms. So subunit vaccines contain part of the virus. Oftentimes, it will contain a protein that is on the outside of the virus. So when your immune system sees that protein, it's going to recognize and destroy the entire virus. Examples of these kinds of vaccines are shingles, HPV, and whooping cough. There are a few other vaccine variations, but the newest option are RNA vaccines. So RNA stands for ribonucleic acid, and it's basically a single-stranded DNA molecule with some differences. But it's not DNA. It's completely different from DNA. In our bodies, RNA messages come from your DNA code and then tell our body what proteins or building blocks need to be made. If you think about this in terms of food at a restaurant, DNA is the waiter. RNA is the ticket that tells the body what dish or protein to make. And the produced food is the protein. RNA vaccines are exciting because they just contain the message to make the protein. And our body is used to reading these messages all day long. It's very good at it. So some people have been claiming that RNA vaccines change our DNA. But since the RNA message just provides a set of instructions how to make that protein, the vaccine does not change or even target human DNA. In fact, the RNA message doesn't even hang around in your cells for too long afterwards, as we'll talk about later. RNA is very unstable, so after the protein gets made, the message will be broken down and recycled. And you don't actually need this message to always be there to maintain immunity. It's just necessary to get the wheels in motion. Beyond the impressive technology of an RNA vaccine, they are also much quicker and easier to manufacture than traditional vaccines. And this is one of the reasons why two of the front runners of the COVID-19 vaccines are RNA vaccines. The Moderna and Pfizer RNA vaccines both give the body the message to make the spike protein that is on the outside of SARS-CoV-2 virus. You may have seen diagrams of what the virus looks like, and the spike proteins are those little proteins jutting out of the main ball that is the virus. When you get the vaccine, it's injected into your upper arm, into your muscle, kind of like a flu shot. And your muscle cells can then begin producing the spike protein, and our body can recognize it as foreign. And this is through a very complicated immunological pathway where our body knows what is self and what is not self. And then if you're ever infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, your immune system can kick in because it's like, hey, I've seen that spike protein before. And it's important to note here, too, when you're getting the RNA vaccine, you're just getting a message to make this spike protein. The SARS-CoV-2 virus as a whole is produced of many more proteins besides the spike protein. So you're not getting infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You're just getting infected with a small part of it for your immune system to recognize. To get into that complicated immune pathway, basically our immune system is trained early on to recognize what is self. Our T cells are the killer cells that attack foreign things in our bodies, and our B cells put tags on the foreign things to tell the T cells what to attack. If either a B or T cell during development tries to attack something that's self, then that B or T cell is destroyed. Thus, the B and T cells that remain in our body can recognize what is self and non-self. So even though our body creates the spike protein from an RNA vaccine, our body can still recognize that it's not self and is actually part of a virus, which is crazy if you think about it. Getting more into vaccine production. 
since many traditional vaccines need proteins to be produced to put in the vaccine, vaccine manufacturers often use chicken eggs, E. coli, and in some cases, fetal cell lines to mass-produce proteins needed for vaccines. However, since RNA vaccines just give the body a message, then there's no need for growth of proteins. For those who are concerned with the use of fetal cell lines to produce the proteins made in some vaccines, it's fantastic that RNA vaccines do not rely on those cell lines to be made. One huge unknown question with RNA vaccines is what will be, if any, long-term impact? Since these vaccines have been used in clinical trials for COVID-19 for less than six months, there is still a lot that is unknown. However, this technology has been in the works for a long time. RNA is a bit of a finicky molecule to work with, though, which is one reason why it's taken so long for an RNA vaccine to come to the market. I work with RNA a lot in the lab, and it's a very unstable molecule. It degrades quickly and easily, especially if it's heated. We also joke that if you have a tube open that has RNA in it, like you don't want to breathe on it because you could breathe on it and it's just <laughs> going to start degrading. So this is likely why you've heard about the two vaccines needing to be stored in a cold area. The RNA message in the vaccine is wrapped up in a fat bubble called a lipid nanoparticle, which just means a small lipid particle. And lipids are kind of fat. So this lipid nanoparticle helps keep the RNA stable, but keeping the vaccine cold helps the fat bubble to protect the RNA and prevent the RNA from being degraded. Because it wouldn't be great if you get this vaccine and the RNA is degraded because then it's not going to work. Yep, defeats the purpose. So RNA vaccines have been used in several cancer clinical trials. However, for many cancers, two people can have the same cancer, but it looks different genetically. This means that different RNA vaccines have to be designed for different people because their cancers are genetically different. One thing I also read recently is for those of you who've been around when the SARS uh, virus was happened in China, I think about 10 years ago, they were pretty close to making an RNA vaccine for the SARS virus. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. There weren't enough people to go through with clinical trials, so it made it really difficult for them to actually see if the RNA vaccine worked. But if you think about it, SARS, the virus, and this SARS-CoV-2 virus, they're about 80% similar. So a lot of mm -hmm. the work was already done 10 years ago to help produce this RNA vaccine. Another common question with RNA vaccines is wondering how long they'll last. And at this point, we don't know. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines both require a booster uh, three weeks to one month after the initial shot, depending on which shot you get. But since we don't have long-term data on these vaccines, there could be a potential to need more shots in the future, but we don't know. We also don't know if the SARS-CoV-2 virus will mutate over time. We know with the flu virus that it basically changes every year, but the SARS-CoV-2 virus has been shown to mutate and change a lot slower. And it depends on where those mutations happen if you would have to design a new vaccine. Yeah, hopefully they don't happen in the spike protein. Hopefully not. But thankfully for both trials, 73,000 people have received the shots. So that's 43,000 in the Pfizer study and 30,000 in the Moderna study. And the information on the trials has not been officially released yet, but both studies will continue for two years to monitor the long-term effect. And I think, I think Pfizer did publish their phase three results recently. 
Yeah, I think they put them up in the past few days since they had, on December 10th, they had that FDA meeting. So I have not had a chance to look at those, but I'll link, there was someone on Instagram who did a really good synopsis of what they Mm -hmm. found, because I think it was a 53-page document, and she read through the whole thing. So we'll link that as well below if you want to read more about the specific study, but she highlights some of the more salient points. In the preliminary research on these vaccines, they both have been shown to be 95% effective. How did they measure the effectiveness? That's a great question. So each trial had a group of participants. They split into two groups. One group received placebo, which is just a saline shot, and the other group received the vaccine. It's completely unethical to infect groups with the virus. So both trials had to wait and see who got COVID-19. Would there be more COVID-19 cases in the placebo group or the vaccine group? Yeah, and I mean, situations like this is where it's it's really important to have a placebo group because, I don't know, you might think the kind of person that would sign up for a clinical trial like this might be maybe taking more public health precautions. Um, so it's really important to be looking at a group of you know similar type people and making that comparison. In the case of the Moderna vaccine, 30,000 people were recruited to the study. 15,000 were given that placebo shot and 15,000 were given the vaccine. After a certain amount of time, they compared the number of COVID cases in the placebo group to the vaccine group. In a group of 30,000 people, only 95 got COVID, and 90 of these cases were in the placebo group, and five of them were in the vaccine group. If you do the math of 90 in the placebo group divided by five in the vaccine group, and you multiply that by 100, that is 95% vaccine efficacy, which means that the vaccine reduces the risk of COVID-19 by 95%. And Moderna also noted that in their trial, the only cases of severe COVID-19 were in the placebo group. So showing that even if you potentially got COVID after getting the vaccine, it would be less severe. Kind of like where people, when they get the flu shot, if they get the flu, it's most likely less severe. This is really fantastic news. I mean, you know, we've been hoping on a vaccine soon for a long time now, pretty much since February last year. And it's, it's just kind of shocking to see how quickly this happens. Um, but if you want to read more about the math behind these vaccine trials, we're including a link below of a st- um, statistician explaining about these trials, since we are definitely not math people. <laughs> I often joke with my boyfriend that, you know, there's only one formula I have to remember for biology, which is C1B1 equals C2B2. I still get people in lab to check my math on that because I struggle with lab math. Oh, yeah. I use a calculator for everything, too. Um, It's sad. At one point, I was in AP calculus, but if you don't use it, you lose it, right? True, true. But this article by the statistician did note that it's important to know these efficacies are based on short-term data. So we do not know the efficacy of the vaccine in the long term. And this makes sense, as we mentioned earlier, if you're if you need a booster shot, your efficacy could decrease over time. But again, we don't know that. That's still to be determined. But overall, these vaccines are very exciting to hear about as an RNA biologist. And knowing how they work makes me feel a lot better about getting them and takes away some of the fears surrounding the vaccine. And I'm hopeful that these two vaccines and any other the FDA approves will be crucial to helping us conquer coronavirus. It is important to note that we don't know those long-term effects of the vaccine, but since they so closely mimic a natural process in our body, we're hopeful that there will not be long-term side effects. 
also when you think about some people who end up getting long-term COVID, this is much better to be protected by um, protected from COVID by this vaccine. I agree completely. And it's understandable that people are hesitant about a new technology, but that's why our goal here on Steministas is to tell you how it works so that you can make the decision yourself about which vaccine you would like to take if you want to take one. We're just here to give you the tools to make those decisions. Once some vaccines have been approved, we plan to do another episode covering the different options because you as a consumer will likely be able to choose which vaccine you want.